Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome back to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here. Um, For some of you, this is the last week of school. And for some of you, you may already be out or you are inching your way to the finish line. So I hope the school year wraps up well for all of you and that you're going to be able to do some fun and exciting things this summer that involve rest and relaxation. All right, let's go ahead and talk about today's episode. We interview two of the co-founders of the Windmill School, Lauren Terrell and Jackie Joseph. It's really interesting talking about the school that they're trying to create because in so many ways they're thinking outside of the box, yet it's doing what exactly we know to be right in education. So while we do spend quite a bit of time talking about the school, they're also so generous and kind and actually go into their stories as parents with neurodiverse children and what their experience is like and what that experience is often like for so many parents in the education realm who just want the best experience for their students, which is what they deserve. So I was really grateful that they were willing to have that conversation because it's one I've been wanting to have for quite some time. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. There's so many good takeaways from it. And again, I hope your school year ends well and that you are able to find some time to take care of you. All right, y'all, sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Lauren Terrell and Jackie Joseph. Hi, Jessica. Hello, you two. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Jackie. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I've heard such wonderful things about you. Oh, I'm glad our worlds have collided. I'm excited to jump into everything you're doing. Well, I'm I'm grateful that you all are joining us today. Yeah, thanks. I'm, and I'm uh, sincerely sorry that you're stuck with just me and that Grainer is not here. He had surgery yesterday, so I'm going to try to harness my inner Steve Grainer as the teaching guru but I, I make no promises hey i have faith in you it means a lot that means a lot you know for for a variety of reasons i'm very excited to pick both of your brains i think i'm excited for, for two reasons because we have yet to interview i mean we've interviewed parents but they're coming to the table as their other roles and so i think part of this interview that excites me is that both of you have different stories to share as parents and i want part of the interview to focus on that and i'm grateful for your willingness for that but then also just then how you have used your experience as parents to think outside the box and to envision an educational system i think which we all believe in yet uh, have found barriers after barriers for for excuses for why that's not possible so i think I'm going to do my best to stay on target with you too, but I make no promises. <laughs> no promises. Sounds good. Um, so we, we do begin all of our podcasts the same. And so I'll, I'll have each of you answer this, but we start uh, with our guests introducing themselves to our listeners, talk about what you do, how you got there. And then if you would feel so inclined talk about your own educational experience as a student, and if there's any connections. Yeah. All right. Okay. Who, who wants to go first? You can go first. Oh, I was going to say you go first. (laughs) Well played, Jackie. You're up. So I'm Lauren Terrell. Uh, I am the founding executive director of Windmill. 
and am by training a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, I spent the last 10 years working for Aurora Mental Health Center, which is a community mental health uh, center here in the Denver metro area, and actually led the school-based services team. So we provided direct mental health services to students and their families in over 100 schools in uh, that spanned about three districts. So I was in charge of the oversight of that program and making sure that our service delivery was high quality, managing relationships with districts, things like that. And so naturally, my uh, my experience as a therapist, but specifically in that role, has given me a lot of understanding about the complexities of schools. I've worked with a lot of teachers in a lot of school systems. Um, and so I really have a good understanding of how schools work and some of the, the larger complexities and politics around schools. My own school experience was actually really positive. Um, I, you know, I always felt that I had excellent opportunities to learn, to be challenged, to ask questions about things I didn't understand. I felt a sense of belonging at my school. Um, I also, though, want to acknowledge, and I think this is a big part of why my experience was the way it was, is that I am a pretty privileged white female. So it was really easy for me to belong in the setting that I was. And I didn't have a lot of barriers in terms of facing oppression or any other types of systems that were holding me back. And so I, I acknowledge that, that that's a very big reason why I had such a positive experience in school. And I do think it's related to where I am now, because part of what we will talk about today is our journey to create our school, and it is very much rooted in a sense of advocacy for those who have been historically oppressed by schools. I think I'm up. Yeah, now. you're up. I was I panicked with which mute button I had utilized, so I, that's why my delay was awkward. But yes, Jackie, you are up. So my name is Jackie Joseph. I'm a co-founder of Windmill. What do I do right now? I am a a research associate professor uh, at the University of Denver in the Mortgage College of Education that I went back to uh, the Positive Early Learning Experiences Center in March when I transitioned out of the executive director position of my daughter's preschool. And that's part of our story too. So we'll probably, you know, get to that I have a master's in social work and I have a doctorate in um, education and human development, but with a specialization in early childhood and early childhood special ed, which is like the longest title ever. <laughs> um, and I got that before I had Juniper, who's my older daughter who has rare genetic syndrome and disabilities. So I was in the world of promoting inclusion and belonging and high quality early childhood care and education experiences before I started living in that world as June's mom. Like Lauren, I do think it's incredibly important to acknowledge that where I am has a lot to do with my own privilege. Um, I am also a white female who came from a family, you know, that had resources that had a value of 
education and that also always told me that I could do anything I wanted to do, which again relates back to the the privilege that that my family has. I think it was my social work degree or experience that really taught me about systems and human dignity and rights and affirming people for who they are and building solutions by co-creating them, you know, with people, not for people. I had a pretty average educational experience growing up. I I never quite felt like I fit in, I guess I would say, but like that's it wasn't I think just maybe maybe now that I'm thinking about it early on, I started thinking like, why do we do all of these things? Right. I have ADHD. And so my brain doesn't work in like a linear fashion, as you're probably already realizing by listening to me. Lauren tells this like beautiful time sequence. And I'm like, well, let me start now. And then let's go back. My brain has never worked well with traditional education. However, that's what I did to get where I am. I didn't have like a unique experience or anything. So now I do a lot of work in social and emotional competence and inclusion for all young children and including, you know, children with disabilities and children and families with with other social identities who have been historically and are currently marginalized. And so I find that work really, it really connects to our family situation um, and experiences as well. So I never stop thinking about this. So I'm really excited to to all talk about it today too. I mean, first and foremost, thank you both for sharing. And I think that acknowledgement of, of privilege is extremely important. And I do find it, you know, ironic, Jackie, that you were joking, but to some degree, right? Growing up with a brain that functions different than the peer next to you, that you still went the traditional education route. I do want to, and I'm going to try to stay focused here, I'd love for for us to dive a little bit into your stories as parents. All the dots will connect. I guarantee that listeners, all the dots will will connect. And without making this much about me, because you're the guest, I will say, Lauren, when, when you and I connected, this is the most interesting part that I was thrilled that you were willing to share. You know, my story is my daughter's story to share, but she's also neurodiverse. And I remember the wind being knocked out of me when we got her diagnosis, mostly because of school, mostly because of, holy shit, what is her access to education going to look like? And I'm knee deep in education. I shift systems for a paycheck or attempt to help the system shift. So I'd love for each of you to talk a little bit about that as a parent and kind of navigating that if you feel willing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can really relate to what you said about having the wind knocked out of you. My oldest daughter, Harper, she'll be five in September. At about six months of age, she was diagnosed with a, a rare genetic syndrome called TRIO that primarily impacts the acquisition of of gross motor skills. So things like walking, crawling, even holding up her head were significantly delayed. That has continued to be the case um, throughout her entire life. So she is currently in a wheelchair. She has a feeding tube and she is nonverbal and uses a communication device. All things that when she was six months of age and was diagnosed were like 
literally my worst case scenarios. And it's really interesting now, five years later, almost to, to consider those things in a different light and, and think, wow, all of the, my worst case scenarios (laughs) came true, but it looks so much different than I had envisioned it in my head. And my daughter is thriving and she is happy and we have a lot of joy in our family and she has an amazing personality, right? So all these things that I didn't think were possible back then are, are happening now, but she does have really extensive support needs. Um, she's a, has a lot of complex medical needs and her diagnosis is also associated with intellectual disability, which I didn't mention just a minute ago, but you're exactly right. I think that when she was younger, we um, were able to exist in this little early childhood bubble. And we found this incredible preschool, which Jackie referenced earlier, called the Rise School of Denver. Um, And she has thrived there for the last three years in an environment where she's included and she belongs and she's celebrated for who she is. And it has been so uh, such an integral part of our family's healing process. And so just in the last year, we, you know, have been starting to think about kindergarten. And I can relate to what you said also in just a lot of anxiety around what school is going to look like for her. And so the more research we did into different kindergarten options and schooling options for her, we learned that for the most part, pretty much our best option or choice for her was a segregated or what they call a self-contained classroom that was away from her non-disabled peers. And after our experience with RISE, that was just really unacceptable to us. So we did a lot of grieving, a lot of soul searching, um, and a lot of discussion within our family of like, what what are we willing to endure? And what are we willing to accept about the current educational system as it is in regards to her education and her learning? Like, are we okay with her being in a segregated classroom away from her peers? Are we okay with her being in a classroom where the focus is life skills instead of academics? We had to really face all of these ideas that we had about about what we thought school would be for her, what she could achieve just being really thoughtful and intentional about that. And so that is, in short, our family story of kind of how we got to where we are now in creating Windmill, just by the sheer need to have an educational option that honors her ability and her dignity as a person with a disability. I just want to echo that because I think I'm reflecting on my initial statement, which we both experienced, right, of having the wind knocked out of us. And I think I think it was twofold. I think very quickly I realized part of my my strong reaction um, was valid because I do think the educational system is archaic and it's we have to talk about better ways. But I think part of it for me was also probably some of my own bias of my own lack of understanding of neurodiversity, even though, again, I get a paycheck to try to make it better. I still didn't fully understand. And so part that I've that I've been able to work on, right, that I've been able to to say, hey, that that was a me issue. But the school piece is still real for me. Jackie, do you feel comfortable sharing a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right. You know, you said it's it's probably twofold. And when I really think about how I felt when we got Juniper's 
unexpected diagnosis, it was probably like 100 fold because we're in this system, largely this society that is ableist and we've all got implicit biases around ableism and what that means and what that looks like. And I have the opportunity sometimes to, to, you know, talk about our family story in different situations. And I'm really honest about the fact that that's still something I, I reflect on every single day. Right. And I think that acknowledging it, um, is a really important part of, of my mom. I hate to call it a journey, but I guess I'll think of a better word for it at some point. We got June's diagnosis when she was nine days old. And I think for me, what was my biggest knockout was the shame that I felt because I was already in the world of inclusion. I was in the world of affirming people with disabilities and I was scared And I was in disbelief that the hard future that I was advocating to disrupt for other families was going to be my hard future. And that was something that I still probably wonder about about the future. I'm a lot more optimistic about it than I used to be. And and now, though, I love what you said where where you said, Jessica, I've realized that was about me because all of my fears are about me. June is proud of herself. She is herself. And my fears, now I can say they're not about June. I don't want June to not have Shaw or autism. Our family believes that disability is diversity. We celebrate her. Our world and family and life is so much better because of all of the idiosyncrasies she has that she wouldn't have if she didn't have disabilities. But I, my fear now relates to the world, right? Because even in this experience of figuring out where our kids will go after the RISE school, we've been met with more like explicit ableism than I think my heart was prepared for. And Lauren and I have had a lot of conversations about just how much we have to think about and honor the pain of working to disrupt and change a system for our kids who are literally our hearts beating outside of our chest. When June was Juniper is her name. When she was one, uh, I was on the board of directors of her school and the opportunity to become the director of her school came. And I knew that inclusion was the most evidence-based practice that we could offer her. And it is for kids with and without disabilities in early childhood and ongoing but I also knew it was her right, you know, and, and I don't want her to just have access. I don't want her to just be in the space. I want her to belong there, to be fully supported there, to be valued there. And so in 2020, right as the pandemic hit, right after I had my younger daughter, Goldie, I started as the director of the nonprofit preschool that, that is the Rice School of Denver that really launched all of this. You know, people I think, ask me, what are you going to do for Juniper? Because we don't have choice. Lauren and I talk a lot about choice. I think 
the subordination of families and kids plays such a in their choices and autonomy plays such a big part in those fears that we have about education because we just don't have a lot of choice. And if the district says we won't include them or we'll just give her access to the space, but we won't support her. I contacted an advocate once and she was like, well, we'll enroll her in kindergarten and then she'll regress for a quarter and then we'll engage in legal or in mediation and then in a legal battle. And I was like, that is my option. We have to have better options in this, but we don't, we really don't. And so, um, so I made a joke to Lauren one day when she said, well, what are you, what are your family's plans for Juniper? And I said, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just start a school by then. And then about six months later, Lauren came up and she was like, hey, you know, I'm trying to think about what my next phase in life is going to be. Do you want to stop joking and get serious about starting a school? I'm in if you're in. And it's just like history from there. A really winding, wild ride of tears and laughs and celebrations and upsets. I remember we left the district that Juniper would go to if she wasn't going to windmill. And I had to find the first door. Like I went into a courtyard. I had no idea how I was getting back to my car, but I was just, I looked at Lauren and I said, I need to get out of this building because there's no oxygen left in my lungs. Like I, I have to get fresh air right now. And it's, you know, I think in that moment where I really realized this has to happen for June for Goldie, who doesn't have disabilities, for every kid who just deserves a better educational experience than what they're getting right now. Yeah, I just picture Lauren being like, so about that. (laughs) Well, just to add in something funny about that is that I feel like I've always been a really intuitive person. And literally the second she said that to me, even though it was joking, I felt this literal jolt of energy in my body. And I came home that afternoon and I told my husband, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start a school with Jackie. And he was like, okay. But I knew even though it took us six to eight months later to actually make that choice, I knew then that I was going to uproot my entire life to make this happen. I have two follow-ups. One will be a question and one's a comment. It's interesting to me, even hearing your stories of, you know, Jackie, when I say, or or, sorry, when you say our choices didn't exist, we felt like we didn't have that. And, And in my mind, I cannot imagine what families that don't have privilege feel like. I'm assuming that the three of us even have the capacity to contemplate, okay, there could be possibly other options. There are literally families that are marginalized on top of this. And I don't want to come back as deficit, you know, focused for, for any of this, but that's just, that's just not the reality. And so that's one of the reasons that we have decided to pursue a charter school because we have that same observation and that same thought. We agreed from the beginning. The last thing we want to do is to create a program where only the people with resources can access it because we know that there are many, many other people out there that have even fewer choices than we do. And we want anyone who wants to attend this program, whether they have a disability or not, to be able to do that. And so that's one of the reasons, even though it's much more complicated for us, that we've opted to go down the charter path instead of any other option for that exact reason. I appreciate that. So before we pivot into the the school that you have visioned and are working on developing, do one of you mind actually 
just defining ableism for a hot second. I think that's a word that's used quite a bit. And I don't think everyone knows exactly kind of what what that exactly means. Yeah, I think to think of it most simply, and please build on this, it's the ways in which people with disabilities are seen as less than or subordinated or given less choice or access or opportunities or not thought of, you know, lots of equity statements include a reference to disabilities altogether. And it's the ways in which we've socially constructed these definitions of what is normal, what is good, what is worthy, what is what is okay, what should we strive to be. And then our forming of beliefs around that, that leads to systems that don't consider or that segregate you know, for us, we learned that schools were willing to say, well, we give access. That's not really inclusion, but that's better than nothing, right? And it's like, no, you're dehumanizing them. Like they are people, they are humans, and they can learn and thrive and deserve to be in the general education spaces just as much as as other kids do. But it's just all of those systematic injustices that people with disabilities experience and it's due to ableism or those implicit oftentimes not even conscious like beliefs or thoughts or ideas dispositions that we have related to what is quote able or what is quote not able. I think a good example is one that we've encountered a lot which is this idea that um, like kids in the kids with disabilities in special ed classrooms or in self-contained classrooms like learn a different curriculum than the kids that are in a general ed classroom like a lot of times those classrooms are focused on life skills and it's like who's to say that my harper or jackie's juniper can't learn shakespeare it's like this predetermination of their ability to learn another thing that comes to my mind is we have heard a lot of families say well, why would I send my kid to this school? They're really normal. Or I want my kid to go to a normal school. And we've had to really take pause in receiving those statements because the reality is that if you replaced normal with any other social identity, it would become completely unacceptable to say something like that. But but we're still allowed to say in many circumstances that people with disabilities aren't normal or they're not welcome or we don't want to be in the same spaces as them. And I would just add, I do think it's really important, Jessica, what you said, you know, it's it's my child's story to tell. I don't want anybody to think that I in any way, shape or form think that June's disabilities are mine. They are hers. This is her story. And Lauren and I talk a lot about this this boundary that that we're on because our kids are very young. Uh, we are in many ways responsible for being their voice and we're very careful to listen and observe and advocate and ally in the ways that we really do think affirms what they want, not what we want. And it's this unique situation to walk this space when we have such young children and when I'm her voice a lot of times for her. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting place to be as a parent. 
okay, I have to say one more thing because it's coming up. And one in our, gosh, was it season one or season two? I don't remember. We interviewed Carrie Mueller, who is the state director of the Best Buddies program for the state of Iowa. And what you were saying, you two, was really, you know, striking a nerve in a positive way because she also has highlighted the overarching beyond positive benefits that come by having diversity show up in so many different ways in school, including neurodivergence, the results and um, the way that it manifests for the students, not just the teachers, but for the students who are side by side with someone who might be neurodiverse is just phenomenal. So it is interesting that there is still some apprehension for that. Anyway, let's jump into Windmill. I'd love for you to share with our listeners kind of what you've created, what you've envisioned, who wants to take it away. I love it. You both literally just pointed at each other. So we Jackie, did. I up. know. I was like, Lauren, I made it out. I love when people say we developed it. You know, we're not developing something novel. What what this all started was was looking into does something inclusive and K through five exist. And there's some very individualized programs that hit on some of the elements that we were really looking for. But so we did a full on like comprehensive review of the literature. And what we ended up finding out is that when you close that research to practice gap, which is we know like 20 plus years in terms of what innovators and researchers are are saying should be happening in education, versus what's happening now. And we know that lag is likely to be 20 plus years till kids are experiencing, you know, what researchers now are saying should be happening. It's really individualized. It's really differentiated. It's really rooted in the strengths of children and their individual trajectories. And it is inherently inclusive. And so we we kind of giggle a little bit when people where when people say we're we're revolutionary or we're we've developed this and and we're like no we're actually just doing what we should be doing which i guess that's kind of revolutionary i don't know so we we did the the literature review we contacted some of the experts in the field and asked them some of our remaining questions and then we started focus groups co-creating with families. Lauren organized those really beautifully around everything from culture to inclusion, to belonging, to curriculum, to, to teaching teams. And we we developed the model based off of that. And, and along the way, we found this wonderful woman named Jessica Garrison, who's our third co-founder, and she is really into teacher development. And so our charge really became high quality education coupled and paired with high quality professional development that is supportive and ensures that teachers are happy and competent and confident, which we know will lead to, you know, the best experiences and outcomes for students and families. And some examples would be we have a co-teaching model. So every classroom will be taught by a by two teachers, one with a special education degree and one with a general education degree, both who are responsible for knowing and supporting and educating every single child in the classroom, right? Very strong focus on family partnerships because every family, not just families with kids with disabilities, oftentimes has told us that they do feel like the amount of information and input that they have in early childhood drops off at kindergarten and goes from there. We vetted every single curriculum to make sure that kids were able to all learn the same things. 
And we ensured that we have flexible schedules and opportunities to learn and show what you know. And I'm just as excited for Windmill for my daughter without a disability as as I am for my daughter who has a disability. Actually, probably more so for Goldie. (laughs) I think that she'll benefit just as much from the education and obviously from in the education that she likely wouldn't have if she didn't attend school in a classroom with kids with disabilities. An education that can only happen when kids with disabilities are in the classroom, because right now you wouldn't have access to a special educator who really just specializes in individualizing and differentiating education when it needs to be done. You know, you wouldn't have that in the classroom or you wouldn't have access to other therapists. Another big part of the model is an embedded therapy model where therapists help monitor and support all of the kids in the classroom as as they need it. So you don't have to like open an IEP if you have like a finger grasp need, like that's just part of our values and, and model is that we just provide the level of support that every child needs to thrive. I know there are gaps in what I'm saying, but those are the parts that I'm the most excited about. As you were talking, I was kind of writing some things down. And I think the three things that really stick out to me, the first is we call ourselves a competency-based education program. And really what that means is a high level of differentiation for every student, regardless of their ability. And Jackie spoke to that just a minute ago. But that combined with this really strong foundational culture of belonging is what makes our school really unique. And what that means to us in a lot of, in the case of special education or disability, is that our baseline is 100% inclusive. So kids start in their general education classroom. I'm not even gonna call it that anymore. In their classroom, 100% of the time, rather than being removed for any deficits that they appear to have and having to earn their way back into their classroom with their non-disabled peers, they start there and every single kid, regardless of their ability, thrives in the same classroom 100% of the time. And I think that is something that is not happening. Schools will say it's happening, but it's not, especially for kids with extensive support needs and intellectual disability. But it's also just so important for all of the kids, as we've all discussed already. The other thing that's really important is that when we say belonging, lots of people think, oh, the kids without disabilities are helping their peers with disabilities, and we're disrupting that whole narrative too. Everyone teaches and learns. Everyone has strengths and opportunities for growth. Everybody helps everybody the same way in the classroom. You know, at RISE, I would always say, no one's here to save anybody. We're all very important, contributing, meaningful members in this community. And we're really intentionally layering on social justice, identity affirming, uh, that also particularly and includes children with disabilities, you know, to ensure that we're really valuing, honoring, and affirming all the ways that we all contribute and are important to the community. Walk me through my statement that I'm going to make, because here's what's coming up for me. I think one thing that's that's standing out that I really like is this focus on the differentiation component. I think, unfortunately, inclusion has become a blanket statement as well, right? That's what we talk about a lot of this podcast, all these blanket statements out there. Everyone's inclusion, inclusionary practices. For me, just having a kid in a classroom, that's not inclusion, 
And I, I don't, I don't know if I'm seeing that wrong. I think for me, inclusion is kind of what you articulated, which is the, the key part, which is the differenti- differentiation. I can be teaching the same concept, knowing that everyone might be at different levels of understanding of this concept. And so I'm going to scaffold it so that we all can take the appropriate content away that meets us where we're at. I think that's the piece that feels is often missing in the, when people just say everything's inclusionary, it's like, uh, but it's, it's gotta be deeper than just a, a human body in a physical space. I don't know if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. I think a lot of schools measure inclusion quote on like the LRE indicator, the least restrictive environment indicator, but all that thinks about is how much time do kids with diagnosed disabilities or IEPs spend in the general education classroom. But I've started saying we can't call this inclusion that's just access, right? And that can cause a lot of harm to kids with disabilities to just have access and to not be meaningfully included and belong. Um, And I think that's where a lot of those false narratives around, well, kids with disabilities in the classroom might take more time away from teachers or things like that, because you need the system, you need the program, the policies, the system. We, we can't just place that expectation on providers or teachers. And a solid definition of high quality inclusion would be access. You have to be there. Meaningful participation and engagement. So universally designing those activities exactly the way that you beautifully described it, Jessica. And then supports, like what supports do students need to be able to meaningfully participate and engage and thrive and develop friendships with with their peers, right? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about inclusion. We're not just talking about access to the space. As you were talking to Jessica, Eric Carter has a framework for belonging. It's it's 10 dimensions of belonging and, you know, support is one of them, but it really talks about access is just one of those 10 dimensions, but lots of people think access is synonymous with inclusion and it's it's just not being aware of our time i'm also aware that grainer's not here and at some point thus far in this conversation grainer would have asked you all are doing the big work right like you are trying to fill that theory to practice gap at a school level by actually creating i mean essentially it sounds like a charter school that's going to that's going to do this for teachers that listen to this that want to do something in the now, in the here, in their space as the educator, what are a few things that you could suggest? I would just say from a parent perspective, I would say that my answer to that is to simply have a growth mindset when it comes to including kids with disabilities in your class. Because the reality is that the system is not set up in a way to either teach the teachers how to do this well or to support them in doing it well. And so we acknowledge that there are some challenges that come with providing high quality inclusion in a system that doesn't really support that. But really examining your attitudes and your beliefs and your biases around serving kids with disabilities and keeping in mind that behind every one of those kids is a human heart that deserves to be included and celebrated and valued just like any other kid in the class would. 
and also a parent heart. I just want to put that in there too, because it might hurt us more than them right now. I mean, I feel like you should just mic drop right there, Lauren, but I have some less. Can you just like in your editing, just put me first and then Lauren and we'll just mic drop right there. Yeah, Um, we'll do that. We'll do that. I think partner with families, just learn what their hopes and dreams and goals are and partner with families. Well, first of all, if you don't have kids with disabilities in your classroom, ask why, ask how you can do more, advocate for them to spend more time in your classroom. If you're a general education teacher or advocate for them to spend more time in the general education classroom, if you're a special education teacher or a related service provider or a therapist, ask if there's ways or times that that we can collaborate more as all of the providers who support kids and families Do we have to pull the child? Could you spend that time in the classroom modeling the strategies that you're using with the child so we can learn and use them all day, right? One of my professors used to say, ask for the policy in writing. Because lots of times what we think is a policy is actually just this idea that has been passed down that's not actually a policy. So be brave to challenge things. And I think look beyond the numerical data to like the meaningful data. Are kids without disabilities approaching kids with disabilities to play, to learn, to be partners? Are all the kids in the classroom forming authentic friendships with one another? I would say that those data are so much more important than any other data that that we can that we can take. Are they true members of their community? Do they have authentic friendships? And then I just love the, you know, engagement over compliance. If if children are actively, meaningfully participating and engaged in things that are super exciting for them, we don't have to worry about the compliance piece of it, right? So the more that we can reframe that helps as well. Now here's Lauren. No. <laughs> no, it, it's uh, just me. <laughs> wah, wah. I apologize to both of you that I spent so much time picking your brain on the parent piece. That was me probably being very selfish. I just wanted to have a space that we were having some conversation with parents. I think it's equally as important. Yeah, I I just, I mean, I just go back to reflecting on before my daughter was born, I was, I was passionate about changing the system. And when she was born, it like tripled, it doubled it, a hundred percent changed. And I just that's privilege, right? That I wish that the hundred percent change, you know, you don't get it. You don't get it when you're privileged. You don't get it when you're in it. You don't get it when you have access. It's just, I don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. And so I we often yeah. talk about who we would be without our daughters. Who would we be if we didn't, hadn't had that experience as parents? And Jackie and I talk a lot about how ultimately we are so much better because of them. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate both of your time, Lauren, I was glad that our worlds collided in Colorado when I lived there years ago. And I'm glad that they're still connected, even though we're states apart and that you're continuing to do the good work that you're doing, even though it's not unfortunately in the state of Iowa, but I'm just going to dream that this will spread. Jackie, it was super great meeting you. We're going to have to have you all back on when this is up and rolling with the stories and interview some students and really look at that. That would be such an honor to do that with you but this has also been an honor i'm so grateful for your time thanks thank you for the opportunity we'll stay in touch thanks y'all